Hello, everybody. This is Hear Her Sports, and I'm Elizabeth Emery. Today, I'm here with Danielle Williams, founder and senior editor of the blog and Instagram Melanin Basecamp, with a monthly readership of 17,000. Founder of Diversity Outdoors, a coalition of 29 digital outdoorsy types promoting racial and gender equity. A co-founder of Team Black Star Skydivers, a diverse 270-member group from six countries, Black, White, Latino, Asian, anyone excited about encouraging diversity in skydiving. She's recently branched out to video with a Kickstarter-funded short film she's producing right now about Black Canadian climbing prodigy Sabrina Chapman. Danielle graduated from Harvard in 2008 and spent the next 10 years in the U.S. Army with deployments to Iraq and the Philippines. I'm excited to talk to Danielle about all of that, about skydiving and what's happening right now. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, good. You recently wrote a blog post on Melon Base Camp, and it seems really important and seems like a bringing together of a lot of your thoughts that I've read. Can we start there? It's the, yeah. let me see what it's titled, Why I Don't Write About Being Disabled in the Outdoors. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm starting out with a bang. Uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about that. It seems really important. Is that true? Um, to write about disability or kind of like my personal like thoughts on it? Your personal thoughts. It seemed very personal. Yeah, which is funny because I normally don't write like really personal um, articles at all. I like to do a lot of interviews and, you know, talk about things going on in, in the culture. It's something I had been kind of working on for a while, but trying to figure out like how to express myself freely without um, doing a disservice to people who are disabled, because I'm sure, as you know, like there are a lot of like stereotypes and just misinformation about the disabled community that range from inspiration porn to like, we're all like living miserable lives and we're not, we're not proud of our disabilities. And, you know, I was kind of like considering that on one end, but also wanting to kind of like be true to my own experience and, um, and not feel like I couldn't be honest and open about my own experience. And, you know, my personal story is that, you know, I'm not someone who grew up with a like severe disability. So I kind of came to it later in life as most of us will, right, at some point. So like for me, like processing that and kind of coming to terms with that has been, it hasn't been like always positive. And it, it that lack of positivity isn't completely attributable to ableism. Some of that is just, you know, I was one person before and now I'm not that person anymore. And I know I have to adapt and kind of like figure out a a new way to be and a new way to like find value and meaning and purpose in my life that doesn't involve some of the activities I really enjoyed before. But, you know, some of that has been like, I don't know, like I feel like I've been mourning like losing this person who I was and still trying to figure out at the same time the, the person who I am now and the person who I will become. So yeah, I didn't wanna I didn't wanna give disability a bad rap, but man, it's hard. It is not always like I don't feel proud of all my disabilities. I'm just gonna put that out there. If you read the article, I'm sure you know that by now. But you know, some of them are like very painful and really make me feel very isolated and you know that that includes like vocal tics that I have. It includes dystonia, which affects like how I walk and frequently how I talk. And, you know, they cause me a lot of anxiety. And um, yeah, I just wanted to be able to share that because maybe there is someone out there who has had a, who can relate, right? Somebody who can relate, who, <laughs> who struggles with like all, you know, some of the disabilities or all of the disabilities that they have. That being said, <laughs> Being disabled can be a very positive experience. There are like really cool disabled people out there. It's a very strong community um, within, I would say, like the disabled community. Just from my, you know, short-term experience of it or limited knowledge. Depending on your illness, you can go online, you can go on social media and connect with people who have that like very rare illness all around the world. And so I think that has been, that's been like the amazing part of being disabled, but there are definitely some like really negative parts. (laughs) Well, you touched on a lot of stuff that I wanted to ask you about in that article. I mean, one of the things that you didn't mention specifically was that in the article, you said that 25% of Americans are disabled. Yeah. Which is just such an astoundingly high number. I would never have expected it. Yeah, definitely. We are, we are a very large, um, I guess, marginalized group within the U.S. And it's something that still doesn't get talked about enough 
And I've had like those conversations with, um, I forget her name, but the woman who runs Disabled Hikers. I've had these conversations with other people where, you know, we can talk and kind of the expectation is that we talk critically about race and gender and gender identity and sexuality, which is good, right? That's progress. But when it comes to disability, we kind of frequently default to, you know, like disability, like inspiration porn is what it's commonly known as. Like, oh, look at that disabled person doing something that they do every day and have done every day of their lives. Yay them, right? Which it isn't always inappropriate, right? There's a time where, I don't know, maybe if you were in a car accident and like you're learning to walk again, definitely cheer like the the small victories like you have to take comfort in that and feel proud of that and like you know also with kids it's very important to like be encouraging and affirming but you know with people who have been I don't know like disabled their entire life like that is not necessarily a way in which they want to connect or relate with um, able-bodied people right because they are more they are their disability but we're also more than our disability right and we've got to move past um, inspiration porn and start thinking critically and talking critically and also kind of making space for people who are disabled to share their own thoughts and opinions and experiences about like, you know, being disabled in a very ableist um, society. Right, right. One of the things that I thought about when you were talking is that, you know, oftentimes an outsider is not going to know what to celebrate. Yeah. You know, they don't know what's hard and what's not hard and what this person yeah. has been doing forever and, you know, what they learned to do yesterday. I mean, yeah, who's to know? Oh, yeah, very true. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that you talk about, which I think is really interesting, particularly in regards to this podcast, is sort of that changing of perspective because of your changing capabilities. And, you know, it it somehow switches your identity. And it sounds like from that article that you're having to figure out, you know, who you are now and how you relate to all these things that you had been doing for your entire life. Definitely. Um that was really hard because I think people, we, hum, how to say this? Like we kind of place our identity in different things that we're good at, right? Whether it's like, okay, I'm really good at like makeup tutorials. Or I'm really good at um, studying and like getting good grades. And for me, um, like my entire life, I placed a lot of my identity and my confidence and what felt like very affirming to me was being outdoors and with running and with rowing, you know, later like trail running and skydiving, which I started in 2011. That is where I felt my strongest and where I felt like most positive and where I felt like just really alive. And I think maybe having an identity that was really rooted in the outdoors made it difficult to go from that to, okay, well, I spent a lot of time at home now. (laughs) And you might not know that if you looked at my Instagram because, you know, we're all busy curating our lives right. <laughs> and it's hard, it's hard to get away from that. But yeah, I spend a lot of my time at home. I work from home. You know, I've got periods of my illness where I'm like more symptomatic and then I'm not even really on the phone that much because, you know, some of my challenges, I can feel like pretty isolated and I can also like have really bad FOMO <laughs> and, <laughs> and not just the fear of missing out, but also like I can get jealous. I can have all of these normal human interactions. And a lot of that comes from the fact that even though I'm three years into, you know, having these disabilities, it's, it's been challenging to, to try to shift my identity, to try to, to adapt, to try to like, okay, well, I can't do those things anymore. So instead of like feeling upset over that, um, I can do other things, right? I know I have like the right outlook, but I still need like a lot of help with like trying, I know the direction I should be going in, but I'm not always getting there. In fact, <laughs> yeah, I'll never get there, but I'm, it's still things like I have to work at daily and like, I need, you know, we all need our support system. So I kind of rely on my friends and my family to help me, you know, to help me feel like valued and help me feel affirmed, even though there are a lot of things that I can do. And, you know, that's, that's one way of knowing that you know, if you talked to me, if you'd spoken with me years ago, I would have been like, no, I'm a well-rounded person. Like my identity isn't rooted in the outdoors. I can do many things, but you know, it, all it takes is some illness to realize that was a, can I curse on this? (laughs) That was a a bunch of bullshit. Right. And we all, well, most of us will all be at that point 
sometime in our lives, right? So I think I'm just at that point a little bit earlier where I really have to reexamine how I kind of structured my life and realize, okay, what did that mean when when I place value in kind of what what I and other people can do physically? So so I really did have a lot of like um <laughs> like just bigotry, right? That I may not have realized was there, but it was definitely a blind spot. I I definitely had bigotry in my life. If I look down on myself now, and yeah, it's something I'm struggling with. I'm not saying I, I do it now, but it's definitely something I've struggled with in like the recent past, right? That definitely means I, you know, was at least subconsciously looking down on other people for not being able to run fast or, you know, whatever, climb hard or whatever. So um I think yeah, through the article, I was just trying to be a little bit more vulnerable about things that I've been struggling with internally. Right, right. Well, it was it was a great article. I recommend everybody reading it. And there will be Thank links you. to that. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you sort of hinted at it. And as a great segue, what, what are your days like now? And what are you working on right now? Okay, so kind of my day-to-day is taken up with running Melanin Basecamp. We have eight bloggers across the country. And so it's like a lot of editing and and interviewing. And recently, we launched a Kickstarter in, I think it was end of August through September, to make a short film about Black Canadian climber Sabrina Chapman. And so that's kind of what I'm doing in my day-to-day right now, which is, it's exciting, it's overwhelming, it's a lot, but I really believe in the importance of telling other people's stories or helping other people share their own stories. And I'm really excited to be working with Sabrina. Um, So we filmed a trailer back in April at the Red River Gorge. And, you know, that was part of our Kickstarter campaign. And, you know, fortunately, we were successful. We raised over $28,000 and then an additional $7,000 from corporate sponsors. So, yeah, that has been just really exciting working on that initiative. We're really um, excited about partnering with Mountain Equipment Co-op out of Canada and then partnering with Marmot as well. And, you know, the fact that they believe in what we're doing, that that definitely means a lot. The fact that like 416 members of our community believed in what we're doing and donated or contributed to this project is really exciting. I'm still mind blowing (laughs) to think about that. So, yeah, like we're working on that right now. We'll be going back to the Red River Gorge in October, and then we'll be doing some filming in Toronto at the end of this year or early next year. It's our first film project. (laughs) I'm just so excited that you're doing that film. And can you talk a little bit about why you're making it? And when you're talking about that, let's talk a little bit about representation of women and women of color in the media, but important for here in the podcast, in sports media and in sports films. Definitely. Okay. Um, So I think, let me go back a little. The idea to do the film project came out of (laughs) an article that a guest blogger, um, I'm going to butcher her name, but Nana Heed, I forget her last name, but she's a blogger from Vancouver. She's a climber and she wrote an article about I forget the title, but it was basically kind of like a call to action. Let's stop making movies about white guys doing cool shit. Oh, yeah, that was and, a great one. Oh, my gosh, yeah. it was so good. <laughs> it was it was definitely controversial. I love the article personally, and um, it, it kind of spurred a lot of conversation on that topic. And, you know, some people you know, took it one way and some people took it the other way. But there was a lot of really good conversation in the middle, which was, you know, for years and years, the dominant narrative has been about, you know, really cool, amazing things that primarily white guys are doing in the outdoors. And we can either try to copy that narrative or we could do something different, right? Like we don't have to um, use the same mold that everyone's been using, right? The, The story doesn't have to be well, let's just do the same thing, but replace it with a black woman. Like, what if we told a different type of story, a story that, you know, your cousins would want to watch, that your parents could understand and appreciate that your abuelita would want to watch? Like, let's tell that kind of story. And so the balance is, you know, between sheer athleticism, because, you know, people, they do want to see like a free solo and, you know, something like that's one end of it. Right. And then on the other end, you know, what are the values that are kind of important to our communities? A lot of us come from immigrant communities, immigrant families. We come from, you know, families of color who don't necessarily understand, you know, why after they've worked so hard to give us a better life that we are now like spending free time and spending money like camping, sleeping on the ground, that kind of thing. So 
<laughs> what if we wrote a story or what if we filmed a movie that could kind of bridge those two communities and, right. you know, create an end product that was also very affirming of women of color? Because let's face it, like, if you are a person who is a minority, right, and if you're a double minority or if you're a triple minority, if you're a black woman and disabled or a black woman and something else, right, it can be really tough to learn a technical skill in the outdoors when no one looks like you. Even if people are not overtly racist, there's still that tendency when they see someone who does not look like them making a mistake instead of attributing that mistake to the fact that they are a novice learning a brand new technical skill in a brand new sport. Sometimes our mistakes can be misattributed to our race, to our gender, right? Maybe black women shouldn't be doing this. Maybe this sport isn't for women. Maybe you're too tiny. Maybe you're not strong enough, that kind of thing, right? And it creates a lot of negative self-talk. All that kind of like... (laughs) comes back to Sabrina Chapman, right? She's a phenomenal athlete, doesn't work with a coach. She's a climbing prodigy out of Toronto, Canada. She comes from an immigrant family. Her parents are from Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. And she took to climbing later in life. She didn't start climbing until she was 26, which is pretty amazing. I love that. I love it. Yeah, where people start like competing as young as five. That is incredible. So she had a late start, took a non-traditional path to climbing. She did like other sports like track when she was younger. And like her story is just really interesting. And now she's on the brink of climbing her first 514A. I'm not a climber, but I have been told like that is the threshold for elite climbing regardless of gender. So it is a big deal that a black woman is about to do this. And so we considered that on the one hand. Sabrina is such a phenomenal, humble person who pushes herself, who climbs hard, who, you know, is very vulnerable and is willing to kind of open up about you know, what brought her to climbing, how she deals with like negative self-talk, what her experience has been as a black woman climber in an, you know, community that is predominantly white. And so we considered that on the one hand, we considered kind of what it would mean for young women of color, for, you know, young girls, for young girls period to, to look and be able to see someone like Sabrina on the big screen, you know, climbing really hard, achieving her goals, but also, um, you know, putting a new spin or new twist on a climbing film, which is being vulnerable and talking about some of the things that don't necessarily have to do with, you know, how good your lock off is or, you know, how long you can hang on a hangboard, that kind of thing. Right. Sabrina was definitely the person. And, you know, early on when myself and Amon Anderson from Beast Fingers Climbing were, we were in the, the comment section on that one article that I mentioned and, you know, dealing with trolls who were like, well, if you don't like it, go do your own. Why don't you make your own film? <laughs> and immediately, Amon and I were like, that is a brilliant idea. That is a brilliant idea. I normally don't take advice from trolls, but that was like one exception where I thought it was such a great idea. And, and things started moving fairly quickly from there. We connected with a black filmmaker uh, in Sacramento. We started building the team. We reached out to Sabrina. She said yes. Overall, the goal is is really representation. And in our Kickstarter, kind of like in the page for our Kickstarter and in some of the articles we wrote, one thing I wanted to emphasize was that what Sabrina is doing is incredible. But there have also been other <laughs> black women and other women of color going back a few decades who have also achieved amazing things in climbing and they didn't really get their due. (laughs) They didn't get a press release, you know, when the first African-American who happened to be a woman climbed Everest back in the early 2000s, there was no press release. There was no fanfare. There was no interview. There was nothing. Let's change that. Let's tell some of our own stories instead of waiting for them to be told because so often it does seem that even with, you know, a recent kind of reorientation towards diversity and including more diverse people in campaigns, it still seems like you have to wait around for a company to deem that your story is like worth being told. And, you know, sometimes it's not always told in a way that is consistent with like how you view yourself and view your own story because we're more than inspiration porn. Like we're real people, right? With real goals and, you know, real challenges and real struggles, just like everyone else. So um, we really jumped at the chance to be able to help Sabrina tell her own story in a way that's consistent, you know, with how she sees herself. That's not exploitative and we're just thrilled at the opportunity to do this. Thanks to the Melanin Base Camp community and thanks to our corporate sponsors. So let's talk a little bit about storytelling, although I do want to get back to what you're doing now. What do you mean by storytelling, I guess? And why is that so important? And I'm asking that in part because Melanie Basecamp is primarily about that. 
We are. And that's something I thought about a lot when we first got up and running back in 2017 is what would our approach to storytelling be? And I think storytelling is is very important. A lot of that does happen visually now through, you know, different media, but it shapes the culture, right? The stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, that is culture. And for so long, there's only kind of been a one note, right? One dominant story, which is really about white men. And so we're looking for a way to, instead of this being like a zero-sum game where white men get to tell fewer stories about themselves and we take more of the pie, well, we don't think it's like that, right? Like, it's not it's not a zero-sum game. We can tell more stories. There's no limit, right? And I think we all benefit from that diversity when we're able to put ourselves in someone else's shoes or just listen to someone else's experience. I think we all benefit from, you know, gain knowledge, we gain experience. Um, We just become more empathetic as individuals. And that's something that we've been trying to do by helping to uplift and become a platform for stories that don't normally get told about the outdoors. And they don't have to be like, oh, I climbed this really high mountain or I did this really cool thing. It can be, you know, what was your experience, you know, learning something new for the first time when you were the only one who looked like you or what was your experience going to this event, which was designed for people of color in the outdoors or what was your experience growing up black and outdoorsy or Asian and outdoorsy, like we want to just hear a variety and be a place where, you know, people from different backgrounds can, can tell their own story. And so that's been really cool to do through our, our main bloggers on the website. And then also through, we have a community blogger function we call around the bonfire where people can submit their own story to Melanin Base Camp and get it published on the platform. And that's been great. Some of our like most popular articles have been through community submitted articles. So it's just been it's been it's been great. Like I I am a big believer in storytelling and I, I think that, you know, as some of the mediums change, as you know, we experiment with like video and we can get into short films, I think we'll just be adding more. It'll enrich kind of the project that we're trying to do for people who might not want to sit down and read like a three to five minute article but would love to click on a link and watch a video. So right. we're just trying to cover cover everything and, and reach more people. And I've heard you talk about the language being used in storytelling. And it reminded me of when I talked to older women who say, you know, I didn't play any sports growing up because there weren't those opportunities available to them because they were pre-Title IX. And yet then they go on and they tell me about being outside and running around every day when they were kids. And so, you know, I thought about that because, you know, sports for them means the men's basketball team and they were not allowed on that. But sport doesn't mean running around and climbing trees, which of course that's ridiculous. Yeah, definitely. Language definitely matters. One of our bloggers, Nadia Mercado, wrote a really good article called, I said I wasn't outdoorsy, but I lied. And it addresses just what you mentioned, which is how language kind of defines and and redefines our own memories and our own experiences. Um, In that article, she talks about how, you know, she's gone to a couple different outdoor conferences. And when she goes, she's usually approached by well-meaning people who will ask, so how did you get into the outdoors? With kind of the underlying uh, assumption that she didn't grow up in the outdoors. And that would cause her to reshape her narrative, right? Reshape her personal story. But the irony is she did grow up in the outdoors. She just didn't grow up on BLM land or climbing 14ers or, you know, doing the things you see in the commercials, you know, wearing like really expensive, you know, name brand jackets or technical wear or using ultralight tents and camping gear. She didn't grow up doing any of that. She grew up in a working class community in Florida and she grew up running and going to the beach, right? But when we talk about like the outdoors and we say outdoors, but we really mean in quotation marks, the great outdoors. <laughs> we, we never talk about like, okay, I ran at this like trail or like this loop in my, in my neighborhood. And I went to the beach and did that and like swam or whatever. We don't talk about those things. So there's right. this automatic like built in hierarchy of what matters and what doesn't matter. And it's like, well, who's making these rules? This is not fair. Yeah. For me, it's also like what is and what isn't. You know, like yeah. it, when these women are talking that I'm, I was mentioning, you know, they didn't do sports, you know, yeah. according to them, which I find so interesting. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. I interrupted. No, no, no. I mean, that, that's perfect. So, um, but it's really important to kind of bring awareness to what we're doing when we have these conversations and what is, you know, kind of implied, but not necessarily being said and how that does shape our, our thoughts and feelings about our own outdoor activity. Early on, I was doing the same thing. 
just to be honest, when I would interview people, I would say, well, how did you get into the outdoors? Because that's how I had always been approached. (laughs) And so like my own story, right? I definitely grew up in the outdoors, but being approached with that question, I would shape my own story and I would say, well, I didn't get into the outdoors until I joined the army, which hundred percent isn't true. But you know, when, when faced with that question, I'm like, okay, well, I'm trying to give the answer I think they want and I'm reshaping my story and I'm not aware of it. And there are all these like things going on underneath the surface that I just was not aware of until, you know, I could have these conversations about storytelling and about, you know, what we really mean when we say the things that we say. So I used to ask, well, how did you get into the outdoors when I would interview someone about the outdoors? And, you know, I interview people of color. So I was definitely doing the same thing without being aware of it. And then now I ask, what outdoor activities did you do with your family while growing up? Oh, that's um, great. And I feel yeah. like, yeah, I feel like that question makes more space for different people. Not everyone grew up with their parents. Not everyone did sports, right? So I think, you know, asking that question, it's definitely not the most inclusive, but I feel like it does make space for more people than the question I was asking previously. Previously. So as you mentioned, like words 100% do matter, language matters. And yeah, hopefully we're all kind of being more honest about, about what we say and yeah, <laughs> about language. Right. One thing that I really like about, you know, everything that you've written in Mellon Basecamp is that you make a big point about, you know, getting regular people outside and, yeah. you know, sort of expanding what that means. I just think it's really, it's really great. And I think about that a lot because, you know, on this podcast, I always talk to pretty accomplished athletes. And then I think, you know, am I discouraging sort of the normal person from, you know, calling themselves an athlete and getting out and just running and, you know, even if they're never going to run a seven minute mile or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So what are you doing outdoors now? How, you know, like, what's your relationship to getting outdoors? Um, so nowadays, I, I have difficulty walking so I don't really do every once in a while I'll do like a longer hike and by longer I mean like maybe three miles Mm -hmm. Um, but for the most part I go to parks that are pretty accessible where I can do car camping Shenandoah is one example it's close to where I live and they have like overlooks or short hikes if you're not into you know more of the backcountry stuff which I'm not (laughs) anymore so I'll do stuff like that where you know that's one way to kind of access nature for me I live in the DC area and there are tons of parks which are pretty accessible so I'll, I'll do shorter stuff but I don't even do a whole lot of that. And then maybe once every other month, I go skydiving, which <laughs> when people like know of me online, they're like, oh, she's that skydiver, which is true. Um, I haven't stopped jumping, but I jump less and less. And I'm trying to be like a little bit more transparent with that in in Instagram. And I feel like bad because I know a lot of people, <laughs> I have a private account, but I'm like, oh, people follow me because of the skydiving pictures and I never go skydiving anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> Like maybe every other month I'll go I'll go skydiving just to try to stay current. I still call myself a skydiver and I would say I'm like an occasional hiker. Right. Is there anything that you're doing now that is giving you what you got from skydiving? <laughs> um no. <laughs> Sorry to ask. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. Um yeah, that the answer would be no, probably. That that's kind of like a hard vacuum or absence to fill. Mm-hmm. I would say socially, I hmm, that's a hard one to fill. Right. What did um, you What did you get from skydiving, or what? Uh, and, and, and since you still do it occasionally, <laughs> what do you get from skydiving? So a lot of it is chemical, and I yeah, I would say like a lot of it is chemical. It's just an amazing feeling, and um. Yeah, it's an amazing feeling. I don't know how to describe it. But then there are other elements to it, like socially. I think I'm actually, man, these are hard questions. Skydiving is something I often don't write about a lot because it, it can be a challenging community and I want the best for it. But we have like a long way to go in some of the things that we deal with, ranging from like sexism to sexual assault to, you know, racism in the sport. So I would say socially, I think maybe stepping away from skydiving more has actually been healthier for me (laughs) because, uh, yeah, I wasn't really in a community necessarily like around other people of color. I just wasn't. Now, Team Black Star, the organization I run, I'm still really active in that. Yeah. So when I do jump 
I don't know if this distinction is important. There, there are two ways to go. You can do something called a clear and pull or hop and pop, which is jumping from a low altitude. And then you can go all the way up, which gives you, you know, you jump from like 12,000 to 14,000 feet and you have a lot of time and like you're free falling with your friends and like that's more social. And now I usually jump from a low altitude by myself. <laughs> so I feel like it gives me an opportunity to kind of keep up and stay current with like my technical skills and with my canopy work and work on accurate and that kind of thing but it does remove some of like the good social element from skydiving which was like doing building formations with my friends at, at altitude during free fall so yeah I don't know <laughs> that probably didn't clarify anything but yeah there, I miss a lot about skydiving more often but also I think it's probably good like most negative things there's like a little bit of good there there's like a silver lining right um and I, and I think like Hey, if I were not skydiving less, Melanin Base Camp would never have happened. <laughs> it take everything like takes time, right? And you know, for the first couple of years when I was a skydiver, I jumped every weekend. I didn't travel unless I was traveling with my skydiving equipment and jumping. <laughs> and like I was pretty much only around other skydivers. And the good side of that is, you know, I can go anywhere in the world and we have like the same traditions and the same kind of like rituals and the same thing that make up a skydiving community, no matter where you jump. And, you know, I got to jump outside of the U.S. and like the Philippines and Thailand. And I really just enjoyed the community wherever I was. And the bad part of that is like I wasn't doing other things things as much because I was jumping all the time and it, it takes up a lot of time and energy and productivity. So um, I would say like jumping less has allowed me to do more with Diversify Outdoors, with Melanin Base Camp, with the film project that we're doing. But I do miss it, of course, good and bad. I, I still miss like all the good parts of skydiving. I miss just being healthier and being able to jump more. Sure. But yeah. Yeah, you sort of talked about it a little bit. But when I was doing research about skydiving, I sort of pictured you just jump out and let things go and then eventually you <laughs> pull the cord and get the parachute. <laughs> Clearly that's not what actually happens. There are real skills to learn. Can you talk a little bit about that? There are. Um, let me think. Most recently, the United States Parachute Association had their national championships in North Carolina. That was, I think, at the end of August. So every year there's like a national championship. There's a world championship, which I think is like every other year or something like that. So there's a lot going on. There are different disciplines. I like to call it like Harry Potter, you know, when, <laughs> when the kids get like sorted into the different houses, like they're Slytherins or whatever. Once you join the skydiving community, you come in as a student, you come in like not knowing anything. And once you kind of like graduate, so to speak, with your license, there are different ways you can go. You've got your old school belly flyers, the kind you see on motivational posters, like at the office who are all holding hands and like they're in this big formation. And that started like maybe... <laughs> back in like the 50s or 60s and people have been doing it for a while and it's still really popular and they'll build like really big formations of maybe over 100 or 200 people and then you have your free flyers who fly in different orientations they might fly head up they might fly head down they're flying really fast they're doing kind of a similar formation style jumping you have your wingsuiters they have like long hair they're all like really laid back they that's a joke um <laughs> I got it. <laughs> they do have a tendency for being like very laid back, yeah. uh, different type of community. And they're wearing these like big pieces of fabric that I think you might call them like squirrel suits. We call them wing suits. And yeah, so that's another type of like precision flying. They're flying their body. It's like really technical. They're trying to, you know, go as far as they can. You have your canopy pilots who are flying at speeds up to 70 miles per hour at the ground <laughs> and, and that's another type of skydiving that you can do and I'm sure I left some people out you've got your crew dogs they jump high they pull their parachute or deploy their parachute like pretty high in the air and then they they form stacks of like one parachute with a jumper below it on top of another and they form these like really cool vertical formations in the air so you you definitely have like different communities within skydiving which um is kind of like one really cool part about it, which people might not know. And everyone competes. So there's a lot more to it. Every once in a while, you have record jumps. For example, I forget what they're called. There's a women's record jump that's going to happen in 2020 to celebrate the centennial, I guess, plus one year of women getting the right to vote. And um, that's one cool thing that's going on. So right now they're doing training camps with women all over the U.S. who want to train and get an invitation to come out for that record jump attempt. Cool. So it's a busy sport. Like you always have a lot of things going on. You have different uh, niche communities and that's always fun, you know, get in where you fit in uh, sort of thing. 
you know, like I can't talk about skydiving without talking about fear. Yeah. What are your, what are your thoughts about fear? And I mean, obviously you had, well, can I say, obviously you had it. I mean, isn't that part oh, yeah. of the sport? <laughs> it is. It's kind of like the allure, right? If people weren't scared, they probably wouldn't do it. I think fear is a good thing because it keeps you from getting complacent. I'm sure what I'm saying is like unoriginal because a lot of people say this as well. And I think it is important doing any kind of high risk or moderate risk sport. There's a lot that can go wrong, but it's usually not just one thing that goes wrong, right? So like a series of mistakes or, you know, things that are overlooked or like a system failure. And I think fear is really helpful because it keeps you up to date on your emergency procedures. It, you know, makes you go back and, and jump with a friend or an instructor when you're not super current, you know, even if you're technically allowed to jump, but you, you feel like, okay, I'm not really current. You know, I feel afraid because I haven't done this in a while. Let me go back and, and get a refresher. Let me go to safety day in March to get ready for the spring and summer season. I think fear is a good thing because it keeps you kind of aware. Obviously like too much fear is really bad because, you know, the tunnel vision and like other things kind of kick in. I think fear can definitely be helpful and it's definitely an attraction too. I think it's why a lot of people skydive. It, it probably isn't why they stay, especially for me. I know when I did my first skydive, I had just gotten back from Iraq and I did a tandem jump and I was really nervous on my way there. And then I went up and I did it and I'm like, this is amazing. And yeah, like I think I probably never would have tried that if I hadn't wanted to do something a little bit scary. Right. Um, so I think that was definitely what got me into the sport. It's not why I stayed. When I first learned how to skydive and I finished my like initial course and I didn't know if I was going to stay with it because I, <laughs> where I was is like pretty much all men, like all white guys. And like they were really into the technical speak Everyone was using acronyms. I'm like, I don't understand what anyone is saying. I am not a technical person. Like, I'm like more of an artsy person. And I'm like, I don't know if I am a good fit for this culture. And I think it took a while before, you know, I did some more traveling to different drop zones. And I found like other women who jumped. I'm not to say that women aren't technical, but, you know, I found other women kind of like me where I felt like, okay, well, this sport isn't just for one type of person. It's for, you know, a variety of different types of people. And I would say like what made me kind of stick with the sport and like, you know, I've been doing it for over eight years now is, you know, meeting other people and feeling that I really enjoyed like the social part of skydiving. Like I am a social jumper. <laughs> right. That is a great segue to another question that I had for you. You say so much. I mean, even today, you've said a lot about community. You write a lot about community. You know, why is that so important to you? And what are you, what does that offer you? What are you getting from this community? And what does that mean to you? Um, I think that's a really good question. Personally, why is community important to me? Um, I don't know. Personally, like it goes back to like everyone wants to feel accepted. You know, we, we all have like fear of like not being accepted or whatever. And I think like building Team Black Star and then Melon Base Camp and then Diversify Outdoors <laughs> for purely personal reasons has really helped me feel accepted. I know growing up and even in the army where like everything is about running right oh if you run fast you're a good leader um that's a joke <laughs> so I, I think even in those environments where i did like a lot of sports i really kind of felt like <laughs> like i was the weird one out like you know a little bit and i think when i started skydiving and kind of found my community um I, well, I didn't really find my community. I started skydiving and I started building my community. And I think that really helped me feel accepted overall. Yeah. And same for Melanin Base Camp. And I think it goes both ways, right? I've been predominantly in communities where I'm the only person who looks like me. And that can be really lonely. And I've written about this in skydiving as well. There's definitely like a, just a trade-off, right? You only have a certain amount of hours in a day and a week and a year. And if I'm choosing to spend all of my free time at the drop zone, which I did for years, right? I'm basically choosing not to be around black people or people of color because my drop zone, you know, I've jumped at a lot of different drop zones. They've always been almost completely white. Um, so it's not like a calculus you think about all the time, but it's definitely a decision you're making even without realizing it. And 
the job I did in the army, I was also, I mean, that wasn't a choice, you know, you, you kind of do what you're told, but I was also in units where, um, you know, I was the only black female officer. And so that was socially isolating as well. So I, I think part of like a completely like selfish, purely selfish reason for <laughs> starting Team Black Star and Mellon Base Camp and Diversify Outdoors has been to build communities where I can still do the things I love to do and be around people who look like me. And people probably don't realize this, but if you are white, if you are male, and you've always been in communities where the people you surround yourself with look like you, whether it's intentional or not, right, at work, at church, at synagogue, you know, in your extracurriculars or at the golf course, I don't really know. It's something you've probably never had to think about because that is just a decision you've never had to make. You can't really put yourself in my shoes because you've never had to deal with that. And whereas for me, I think, you know, I I come from like a really close family where I've always felt like supported and affirmed, even doing weird things that, in quotation marks, other black people don't do, in quotation marks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right? But still, like, you you need more than your immediate family, right? Socially, like, you need friends, you need coworkers, you need people where you, you feel like you fit in, where you feel accepted. But, and yet, like, I, I am making this decision to pretty much only be around white people because when I have my free time, I'm spending it doing sports, whether it was trail running or, you know, road races or skydiving, which are predominantly white. And so I just needed like a space where I could be myself and also a way to convince my family that like, hey, mom, hey, dad, like they do this too. It's not just me. Because let me tell you, my, okay, my mom, she will keep me honest. Um, (laughs) She's another, like, motivation behind kind of what we're doing. It's because while I've always felt, like, affirmed and and kind of loved and kind of, like, you know, I don't know why you do this, but whatever. If it makes you happy, do it. She's also kind of kept me really honest and, like, hey, mom, I'm planning this event for Team Black Star. Well, I think you should quit skydiving and go back to coaching kids. (laughs) (laughs) all the time. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> There's nothing like a black parent to let you know that what you're doing ain't shit. And it, it does keep you honest because if at the end of the day, if what you're doing isn't relevant to your community, I think it's especially important in communities of color because we are dealing with like unique challenges, right? Like socioeconomic challenges, racism challenges. If what you're doing isn't uplifting your community, then then my mom doesn't care. Then right. a lot of our parents don't care. They don't understand it, like whether it's camping or skydiving or like, I don't know, snowboarding. They don't understand it. They don't know why you're wasting your time and money on it. And like, how is that giving back to your community or giving back to your family? And some of my writers, again, I keep going back to Nadia, um, have written about this, right? Like it is just a different experience being in an adventure sport. You have all this guilt because like, why aren't you sending more money home or, or to your cousins or to whomever, right? This doesn't apply to myself, but a lot of us are like the first person to go to college or the first person to do this or to do that or to get that like good professional job or whatever. And with that comes additional expectations that you help out your family in other ways. Um, With that comes additional expectations that you continue to help out, um, whether it's financially or with mentoring or just spending time in your community. And so we do have a lot of guilt like like doing unproductive time in the outdoors, which is basically what we're doing. Like (laughs) skydiving is not helping anyone. I will not be helping any kids go to college by skydiving on the weekend. Right. And (laughs) I think, I think I like that because I think I can live and kind of like sit with that discomfort because I think it does help keep me honest and it does help prevent me from being like, Hey, let's just make a film basically about a white climber, but we'll substitute a black person. Like it, it stops me from doing that. Right. You know, with team black star, we um, like have partnered in the past with girls and boys clubs and, you know, raised money for them. We've gone and like done like events with them. And like that (laughs) part of it comes from my mother (laughs) being completely honest. Right. Right. Um, I think it is good to have that, right? right. To have that kind of voice in your back of your mind voice over the phone voice like you know just trying to keep you honest and trying to make you kind of like 
do a bit more navel gazing. Like how am I giving back to the community, whatever community I'm a part of? And there are, uh, let me do a shout out real quick. There are amazing women of color who are doing this, whether it's Karima Batts with Adaptive Climbing, whether it's Bethany Lebowitz with Brown Girls Climb, Shelma June with Flash Foxy, Umbreen with Brown People Camping. Like there are amazing women of color who are already doing this with the community in mind, right? With helping that next generation with representation in mind. Yeah. So that's kind of a long answer, but I, I, I think my motive initially was definitely like just wanting to feel accepted and to have a place where I felt like I belong, where my skin color belong, my gender belong. And now, you know, it's a little bit harder, but like where my disability belongs. Um, so, yeah. Right, right. Well, you mentioned your mom. Who else have been your mentors? And you've said in the past or written in the past about how important mentorship is. Yeah, I would say within... Like within Team Black Star, again, they're not women, but there are a couple of the guys in Team Black Star that I've really looked up to. There are, you know, a couple of different women in skydiving who, when I was brand new, who I definitely looked up to. And I was like, okay, I want to be like them. Years later, I'm not doing exactly what they're doing, but still, they like, it was encouraging to see other women, especially women um, drop zone owners. I think that's a big deal. And there are a couple throughout um, the U.S. and you know, that was kind of cool as well to see, okay, women aren't just like in the game, they run the game, right? So that was kind of just cool and encouraging to, to see women who own drop zones. I think doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work, a lot of the women that I just mentioned, I definitely look up to. A lot of us, we kind of started roughly about the same time in 2016, and we've kind of been on like parallel tracks, right? Working in different communities. And it's been really cool to see what they've done with their community, whether it's like hosting events, whether it's Color the Crag, which Bethany has created with Mikhail Martin from Brothers of Climbing. It's just been amazing to see not only some of the initiatives that they're working on, but how much those initiatives have transformed the people around them who are now like looking forward every year to going to some of these events. So that's been really cool. Well, we're going to wrap up pretty soon, but before that, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think I would just definitely like to put it out there that I feel really grateful to be working with like such an incredible team in many ways, right? The team at Melanin Base Camp, but also the team at Diversify Outdoors, that coalition. And uh, then Teresa Baker, who is the creator of the Outdoor CEO Diversity Pledge, which we host at diversifyoutdoors.com. So I feel um, really inspired to be like surrounded by so many incredible, hardworking, talented people who are just doing the doing the most for their communities while also holding down other like nine to fives and, you know, for some of them. So yeah, I just really, I love this community. I think it's uplifting. People sometimes say like negative things about social media and I'm not denying that social media can have its challenges. But for me, I just feel like it's, it's just been the world for me to, to be able to keep in touch, to be able to you know, have this like online family, even though we're not all living in the same place. It's been really amazing. How do you manage social media and keep it all good rather than go into sort of the bad zone that social media can can become? It's hard. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) No, it really is hard. It's like I have to do constant gut checks. And I think kind of like I mentioned in, in the tongue in cheek, but also true in the article I wrote about why I don't write about being disabled in the outdoors you fall into these patterns, right? Which maybe it has to do with the algorithm. Maybe it has to do with kind of, we mirror people around us and we mirror accounts around us and you fall into these patterns and then you're like, oh my gosh, am I doing this? Like, this is bad. Like this, <laughs> you know, and, and one pattern might be, you know, reposting people who are disabled, you know, if they have a visible disability and if they're on top of a mountain, right? Which makes no sense because that is not, for most of us, that is not our daily life. So like, how can we find ways to, you know, get off the mountaintop and and make the outdoors more accessible is is kind of like a big question. It's a big thing that we struggle with. So we're not just painting one picture of the outdoors, which is perfectly inaccessible for the majority of the country, right? There's there's no BLM land east of like Colorado. So for most (laughs) of us, there are no 14ers in Florida. So for most of us, like that is not our outdoors that's something that we just wrestle with. And I don't think it's something we're going to completely like, oh, we fixed this problem. We'll never be there. But if we're thinking about it, like that is, that's like a good first step. Right. What are your goals for, I don't know, next three, five years? 
Um, we want to continue to grow. We want to move into doing more video because video is kind of the future and continue to interview amazing people who are doing great things for the community. I think as we've grown, right, we've dropped a lot of things. We used to use the term adventure athlete. Oh my gosh, I still feel embarrassed. It was in our Instagram bio. It was like all over our website. You won't see that term used anymore because it's just not accessible. It's not inclusive. And it just wasn't reality. It was me trying to copy the model that was existing. Now we're trying to make it better, right? So you'll find us interviewing a lot more folks who are doing environmental work, who are offering tips on sustainable living, on how not to be zero waste, but to uh, use less waste in your daily life. And that's kind of what people want to see and to learn about. And it definitely trumps kind of like, you know, someone doing a really cool athletic thing, though we love really cool athletic things as well. But people want to know as times are changing, as really scary things like global warming and climate change are affecting us, like how can we adapt and prepare for this? Um, how can we do better and be a more responsible citizen of our world and take care of our environment better. So we'll be shifting to more content that reflects that. Cool. That's great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on the show. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks to you for listening, and thanks to Danielle for taking the time to be here. Danielle mentioned a ton of names and organizations in our conversation. You can find links to all of those at hearhersports.com in her show notes. Tell your friends about the podcast so they too can hear more from badass women. Call our new Hear Her Sports hotline at 725-BE-BADASS to leave your own badass comments. Our design is by Agnes Studio and music by the band Goldmines. Till next time. Bye-bye. Sorry if you hear background noise. That's me and my cat. He's really, he's really nosy. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.